critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. We have now been downloaded in more than 155 countries and we regularly hover near the top of the business category in iTunes. So that's thanks to you, our listeners. But do keep telling friends, tell people who might be interested about the Fintech Insider podcast, bringing you the best insights every week. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by the fine folks from 11FS, the fintech specialists helping financial services companies digitally transform into beautiful digital butterflies. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, David Breer. David Breer, say hello to the world once more. Hello. And of course, we've got a pretty full house today. We've got an, a lineup of some of our favorite people from some of the fintech challenger banks. Uh, we have Megan Kaywood, the chief platform officer at Starling Bank. Megan, say hello. Hello. Good to have you with us. And of course, Sophie Gibbard, the vice president of European expansion at Fedor. Sophie, good to have you with us. Hello. And joining us, we have Oli Perdue, the founder and CEO at Loot. Oli, good to have you. Hello. Uh, Alrighty, so kicking us off, um, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about what it is your banks do? Megan, do you want to get us kicked off with what is Starling and uh, tell us a little bit more about it? Definitely. So Starling is a tech startup with a banking license here in the UK. It's often referred to as one of the leading challenger banks. And what that really means is that we're building a full stack bank, bank from the ground up, with the intention of being mobile only and with a vision of putting the customer first. We have this vision of differentiating from others in the market by understanding our customers exceptionally well, by giving them new tools to understand their financial lives and increasing accessibility. So we want to be the world's best current account, but we don't want to be the world's best mortgage or insurance. And so instead, we're building out a marketplace, which is an API layer where we can integrate in other best in class fintechs from across the market to enable our customers to easily access those um, from all from within their Starling app. Very, very cool. And Sophie, um, what about Fido? What are you guys all about? Yeah. So Fidor is a bank that was launched back in 2009 in Germany based on the principles that we want to also put customer um, first. We have found a way to doing so uh, by launching a community where people can help each other around personal finance topic. And on the other side, give us input about what uh, Fidor should launch next and what uh, basically the, the clients want. We have developed uh, things internally, but uh, since early on partners also with fintech companies because we didn't think we should do everything um, by ourselves. Out of this uh, retail and actually SME uh, model, we are now licensing our technology across uh, the world to uh, organizations such as banks and retailers and telecoms to help them uh, launch digital banking propositions. Interesting. The bank as a platform play really coming in. It's amazing.
amazing how many people want to be banks these days. It's it's definitely growth. Fun fact: um, in two thousand and nine, I remember seeing Fedor pitch at uh, Finnovate, and that was also the first time I ever met Chris Skinner. So it was a big day in so many ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it could have all gone so right. Could it, it? it could have gone, yeah, could have gone well. But no, I, I, I really did enjoy the beginnings of a community around a bank, and I think that was something you guys pioneered, and we're seeing a lot more of. Um, Oli, of course, tell us a little bit about Loot. Yeah, so Loot is a digital challenger uh, focused on the millennial segment. So our bullseye is around 18 to 25 year olds, and we look at key day-to-day issues that we can solve through banking using predominantly the, the transaction data and using that in really interesting ways to help people know more about their spending, but also enable them to do more as well. Very, very cool. So talk to me a little bit about how digital only uh, as a business model could be changing the financial sector. I mean, is there an advantage to not having branches when a lot of large banks would tell me, but I need my branches, that's where my customers come from. And if I close my branches, I get less customers, right? That's That's got to be the case, hasn't it, Ollie? Branches were the best option when there was no other option. Um, when you couldn't onboard people electronically, you had to do it physically. We've looked at it and branch-based account openings is the biggest fraud risk when you open an account as well. So right now it's actually the worst option for opening accounts. Have you got the stat or the source behind that? Because that's a super interesting point. Yeah, I'll find it. Yeah, that'd be super useful. So it was. It was like that's the biggest risk of account opening is the fact that the people aren't trained well enough to look at it. So if you can do that digitally, um, you can do it much better and lower your risk. It's a really interesting point. So actually, I saw a presentation from Dave Burst last mm. week, and he was saying the most critical piece in the English um, documentation is a UK gas bill. Yeah. Because that's what you're taking into branches mm. to do everything with. Like the power of man hasn't got to the point where you can actually fake those things in Photoshop really easily. It makes no sense, does it? And then also the reason branches exist was to upsell. And I don't think uh, consumers think that way anymore. I think people are more open to using different products with different people. You used to go to your bank for everything you don't anymore. So branches are just expensive. I like to think our whole operating expenses are still probably less than one bank branch. So if you think about that as like economies of scale and stuff, it doesn't make any sense to have branches open. That's an interesting idea. So if you were the bank that had the costs of one branch, but the customers of 100,000 or exactly. you know, of, of 1,000 branches, then actually how profitable would you be? Exactly. And that's, that's a why, blog post. That's why when people say like banking and current accounts aren't profitable, they're just looking at it from the wrong angle. I've sat in very many meetings with uh, looking at sort of digital transformation with big banks and actually very often, to your point, Ollie, the branch network is used as this sort of safety net for not being able to deliver on all of the features and functionality you want to do. So, you know, let's not worry about doing it straight through. Let's get them to take a form in because um, it's like 100 grand cheaper than what we'd be doing and we'd be able to then deliver it six months quicker. And it's like... That doesn't really yeah. sort of just false thinking, economy, isn't yeah, it? long term here, maybe this is not a good idea. But, but the uh, amount of false economy in digital transformation programs is phenomenal in large banks. It's kind of, if we can get it six months quicker and we can save half a million, but also then we potentially keep this, we're saddled with this multi-billion cost as a result because we keep making that decision every single time. But it's, um, yeah, my dog was done. I'd live at the project, right? Yeah. That mentality rather yeah. than... Well, I got the tick in the box. Exactly. You know, it was delivered according to the PMO and the project stayed in green the entire time. So, you know, it, it, it delivered. And I think that management of perception is, is quite quite interesting. But, you know, what comes after, you know, you've, you've kind of developed um, some sort of middle of a platform. You're thinking about how to integrate other things. Um, how do you guys make money then? So you've got super low costs. I mean, Sophie, talk to me about what the business model looks like for, for Fido. 
So for Fedor, it started like very naturally. So first of all, like traditional banking model, of course, like credit and uh, and savings and like the, the margin in between, but also referrals to, to fintech. So affiliation model, revenue share on like sending clients to uh, to them and the idea of providing a one-stop-shop experience. So these two uh, revenue source, and that was for the uh, the bank. So are offering uh, free banking in Germany as well, like we charge for the card, but it's kind of market standard. And actually, out of building our own technology, people came uh, to actually ask if they could lend our technology. And this is where a new uh, business model was born because it was about providing our technology to other players to launch digital bank. And out of that, another business model came out, which is lending our business license, lending our marketing activities, lending our AML compliance to uh, players such as telecom companies that wants to launch in banking. So it hasn't been planned since the beginning. It has been like growing step by step with what the market was uh, asking and into realizing that actually like there was business model beyond banking and this is what we have been advocating. It's like, okay, banks, like you see that you cannot do it all. New players are coming in market, come on, like rent your race, make money out of that, let others that are focusing on other target markets do, do business. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because what you're essentially saying is there are many other intelligent ways that banks can make money other than upselling higher profit financial products. Because when you look at the strengths that bank have around the KYC and AML, around transactional businesses, access to payment schemes, there's other revenue streams other than just the net interest margin from lending and deposits that you can also monetize without passing on fees to your customers. So I think that's exactly spot on with how, what we're looking at as well. It reminds me of a story of, of a, a large photography company that um, used to be around, uh, well, it's still around, uh, that they were known for their moment. And these guys were kind of looking at launching a digital camera division. And this digital camera division was going to eat the revenues of the traditional sort of film-based model, the business model that they had. And the thing that the executives couldn't understand was, you know, their business model was the Gillette model, right? You, you've got the device that you get once and then you pay, you make money on the, the razor blades. And same with a camera. You sell the camera once, the camera's okay, but actually you make money on the refills. And what they couldn't understand is how that would work with a digital camera because actually you were looking taking the photos off the device and putting them onto another device. So what do I keep reselling? Like, where's the money in this? Like, how do I ever make money in a digital camera space? They were chemists. They didn't understand they needed to move to a digital business model. And years later, they tried to do it in a number of different ways. But that to me strikes me as what we see happening in the banking sector today in that I make money by cross-selling financial products. And as a result, I must need to continue to do that. And that's that makes money for me now and it will continue to make money for me. Yeah. And I have some sympathy for that because it, it seems to be still working. We've, we've, still, we've seen um, the UK um, top four banks' share of market grow from 66% to 77% over the last 10 years. So you, there's a reason for the complacency. Oli, what do you say to that? Do, should they be complacent or, or is there, uh, is there something, are you guys snapping at their heels a bit? If I was to meet kind of a banker and they say stuff like this, we got the biggest market share. Everything like that's temporary. I have yet to meet a happy banking customer. So until I meet a happy like Lloyd's customer, I'm not gonna believe them. There probably are some out there, but I think for lots of markets and lots of different demographics, they're really underperforming. So they've got scale and they do have lots of money and the ability to transform. 
Um, but if they don't do something, I think they'll start to lose users. I'll, I'll just put up with it. It's exactly. not the same as being exactly. a happy customer. So what do customers tell you, Megan, that they want? Yeah, so we like to spend a lot of time talking with our customers, doing a lot of not just usability sessions, but chatting with them and understanding how they're currently using their banking products and where those pain points are. And what we hear time and again is that what they're used to expecting with seamlessness and ease of use from other apps and products just isn't what they see from their bank. Banks might have an app, but that doesn't mean they're competing. It's like, for example, my bank balance um, I won't name the the big bank that I joined when I first moved to London, but my my balance is never actually accurate. It's always a few days off. So much for real-time notifications. It'll be good if I get it in two days. But just trying to sign into the app and remembering the six different passwords. At every step of the user journey, it's clunky. I have to mail in tons of forms. They just don't get what technology has enabled for customers today. And so there's this kind of gap between what banks are offering and what they're expecting from um, the application that you've we're looking that, to You've fill. got that moment where the big surprise bill comes out and maybe I had a thing where my rent came out a couple of days early and my wage was going to be a couple of days late and of course I thought I'd cash managed it and I thought I'd moved stuff around but of course the bank hadn't caught up that I'd set all of that up yeah. and the money came out of my account before the money that I'd moved back in they'd realized that it had happened so then they sent me a notification that I was massively overdrawn and this was my fee mm -hmm. but actually I'd already told them what was going to change and their systems were just trying to catch up with me being two days ahead of them it's, exactly. it's a crazy thing and those are the stories that we hear time and time again. And if you break that down, there are several moments in that experience you had the, where there was an error that they could have fixed. Like your account balance could have been accurate. They could have notified you before you were going to go over John. They mm. could have not given you a fee based off of the understanding that was happening there. So there's multiple points in user journeys right now that banks are not filling. And so, and that's what we're hearing and that we're trying to solve in delightful ways. So speaking of different business models as we were a moment ago, and speaking of like kind of real time and, and some of the stuff we see in other markets, we see data being huge. Data is the new oil and all this sort of stuff. Sophie, where do you stand on you know, use of customer data and how do you balance privacy of data versus being useful with that data? Is, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so first of all, we are German banks, so like uh, dealing, <laughs> dealing with privacy is very important for a German regulator, probably even more than any uh, other regulator. So that's uh, a first thing. On the other side, like you have ways of using data that are useful to the customers by just anticipating things on an opt-in basis. You have also ways of using data of providing, like, for example, a loan is what we are doing. So we are providing emergency loan and overdraft just by one click. Because why not? I mean, like, we, you can do that by just analyzing what's going on in the past three months of the, of the customer. You know him. You don't need him to fill out a form. So it's about, like, of course, getting additional data from the customers when we need it, but also making the most of what he has already um, given us. In the future, it's going to be about cross-selling, impro improving uh, that capability of being proactive as opposed to reactive, of being able to be here exactly at the time the clients need us. Another thing we are looking into is actually um, charging clients according to like how loyal to the company, uh, to the, the bank they are. So if, for example, they add value in uh, in the community and if they help out each other, like they should probably get a better pricing uh, on overdraft than clients that are a bit less loyal. So we have like these different things that are about instantaneity, um, about cross-selling and also uh, about loyalty around data. 
Oli, do you have any thoughts on the, the data front? What do, where do you guys stand on that? Yeah, I think it's really important to use for your, your customer's benefit. I think it would be really hard to make a great product without using data. The way we see it is if you were to look at a normal banking app, it will show your balance and your transactions pretty much. We're now at the stage where we can show your balance transactions, how much can you spend for the week and stuff, stuff like that, kind of basic budgeting. But then what we can do is if we just compare your spending to other people similar to you, we can then say, well, your spend on food is higher than it should be. And then that's actually actionable data you can give people, which I think is way more important than trying to give them an overdraft because of their spending, yeah. Um, yeah. stuff like that. Different people have different needs. I was at an FCA tech sprint yesterday and they had a number of teams that were working with open banking APIs and open data sets from the FCA. And one of the things I liked was somebody that built a mood tracker versus spend tracker. So they, they took an existing mood tracker application and they integrated it with a spending tracker so that somebody who might have a mental health challenge could see themselves rather than somebody like doing it for them, big brother state, could see for themselves okay, when I'm in this mood, I spend more. And when I'm in this mood, I spend less. And actually, maybe I should set some controls here uh, so that when they're healthy, they can make healthy financial decisions. I thought it was really interesting. Megan. Yeah, I think to build off of Ollie's point cause he, and Sophie's, because they did such a good job of outlining the consumer proposition, the experience of what data can enable. But perhaps the less sexy side, but very, very exciting is when you look at data and big data machine learning particularly, how that can help influence and spur fraud detection. Like, how can you use this in ways to increase security and stability of the ecosystem? Um, not just only in terms of showing transaction data in new ways and helping customers make better financial decisions, which is huge on its own, but if you can increase security as well, that I think that's a really exciting space as well. So on that point, do you guys see yourselves as part of a wider ecosystem to integrate with as opposed to like being vertically integrated? Do you see yourselves as being, or, or just kind of thin and there's, there's lots to the left and the right of you? What, what, how do you see that? So we consider ourselves a platform. So we offer the current account, but at the same time, we've built out open APIs that enable anyone to build on top of our platform. And then at the same time, we're integrating in the best-in-class fintechs from across this ecosystem into Starling. And the whole idea there is we want to focus on the current account, but obviously our users have diverse needs. They need more than just a current account. They need lending, they need insurance, they need mortgages, bill splitting, budgeting, a whole number of products that a number of fintechs have done exceptionally well. So rather mm -hmm. than building that out ourselves, we can instead integrate all of that functionality and those offers into the Starling app. So definitely a horizontal um, play there. It's kind of like how in Salesforce, there's four or five things they do extremely well. And then there's this whole ecosystem of people who build and add to to that around the edges. At 11FS, we talked to them about you know, what's their API strategy going to be. And initially, it's kind of like APIs, people get lost in the tech people get lost in the banking, but actually it's really about what are those customer journeys that you can start to build and how can people augment those? I mean, Oli, do you see yourself as part of an ecosystem? Do you see yourselves as kind of just you're trapping customers and trying to cross-sell them everything? Do you, how do you see it? We look at it from user stories. So what are we going to try and fix? So the first three were um, how much am I spending? Is my spending normal? And how much can I save? And we can solve all of that in our, in our own ecosystem. Um, there will be other user stories that we can't solve on our own. So that's when we'll use best-in-class providers. Um, and that's how we look at it. Pretty interesting. So what's it like being both a startup and a bank? Like, how do you how do you manage all of the regulation scary stuff and that banks say is part of the reason they can't get anything done because regulation is really, really hard, but also sort of protects them a bit? I guess the question is, how do you stop yourselves 
losing some of the sharpness when it comes to being agile? Yeah, so um, I would answer two ways on this one. I would say, first of all, company culture, because, of course, we have uh, compliance people, we have legal people, we have risky people, but those are people that were recruited because they understood the mission, what we were trying to fix, and they are not trying to bend the rules, they are just trying to understand the rules as opposed to protecting themselves all the time. And I think it's really important if you want to be uh, a startup challenger bank basically so that's um, that's the first point and my second point is the size of course like I mean I think HSBC has 20,000 people working in compliance so of course like you you can think that yes challenger bank will grow and you will end up with teams of 10 uh, 10 people in compliance 20 people in compliance but just our structure is not made up so that we reach 20,000 people so of course like when you have a leader in a team even like Two very senior people, even needing a team of 50 people, you end up with one like streamlined discussion, 20,000 people, like it just doesn't add up. Is there something about when a new regulation comes out, how you as an organization react to it? Because I, I sense that when a big bank sees a new regulation, they go looking for specialists in that new regulation to hire versus sitting with engineers and one or two people who may understand that regulation or even just reading the regulation yourselves with some engineers and trying to figure out how you build to it. Is, is that an approach thing or is it a... I'd say that kind of builds off of your first question of like, how do you stay agile within a highly regulated environment? And our answer to that is we still embrace agile as a model, but we have continuous delivery. We're releasing daily, but we have to continually ask ourselves when this regulation comes out, what does that mean for us? And as we continue to grow and in five to 10 years, when new disruptive competitors are in the market, how do we maintain that competitive edge? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer to that is we have to be willing to continually disrupt, even when that means disrupting ourselves. So, and if we need to disrupt ourselves because there's new regulation, that means there's a new competitive market that we need to respond to, then we need to be willing to do that. I think a great example, like looking at an example from uh, the US is Intuit. So Intuit is this massive 30-year-old company that built out QuickBooks back in the 80s, but they've maintained their competitive edge really, really well, and they're still a billion-dollar business today. And that's because they're not afraid to disrupt themselves. They have this ethos of speedboats versus battleships. So they launched QuickBooks, QuickBooks Online, 10 years before Zero made it into the market. So Zero went into uh, New Zealand and Australia, and MYOB and others were said to be asleep at the wheel because they just didn't get the cloud. Like, oh, it'll, it'll never take off. And if they they were to offer an online offering, it would disrupt their revenue stream. Intuit, on the other hand, even though QBO, their QuickBooks online offering, disrupted their desktop offering, they still pushed it out and they still forced migration onto it early because they saw what the competitive threat would be. So I think even in within banking, we're going to have to maintain that from a regulation perspective, from a competition perspective. We're the disruptors right now, but we won't always be. So we'll have to be willing to disrupt ourselves when that time comes. Mm-hmm. Disrupting yourselves is a really interesting thing. And I think there's an honesty thing about the term agile as well. I haven't met a large bank yet who doesn't tell me how great they are at agile. Ollie, what's the difference between agile and agile? <laughs> a great example is um, we built a whole fraud engine in a weekend. That's what we call agile. I think um, the second you realize there's a, a thing you need to do, you just do it and there's no nothing stopping you doing it. I think agile in a kind of a banker sense is six months planning, three months kind of integration, then two months working out if it works. But for us, if obviously we plan pretty ahead of what we do, but if something comes up, the ability to be able to build brand new functionality into your product and release it overnight or over a weekend, I think is really key. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think um, you know we we've got asked quite a few times about how do you implement agile at scale? Mm-hmm. Well, you you do it by getting the right people who are motivated in the right way, who have the the skill sets and the right tools to actually address the problem, mm-hmm. and then you go and address that problem. You don't read fifty books and kind of get people in to figure out you know what the gap analysis is between our processes and what we want to get to. You just empower people to do it in a different way. There's a real paint by numbers thing. I think it's like if I've got a board with some post-its on and I've got a backlog and I've got the word sprint and I've got a scrum master and I've got everybody at a daily stand-up, then I'm doing agile. But if I have to get a backlog prioritized by a committee that doesn't sit more than once a month, then I'm not doing agile. And it's not so much the um, how you manage the features and how the developers pick up those features and move them along. It's the decision-making in the organization and reacting to things. And speaking of you know, reacting to things, things like an outage um, can, can be really um, a thing that you need to react to. And Oli, you, you had an outage at a card processor you use and uh, it shut down you know, Monza, Revolut, yourselves. Um, but your customers seemed really grateful for the transparency about what was going on and, and seemed to kind of strike a contrast with what we would have seen from a larger bank. Could you tell us more what happened there and some of the customer reaction and, and so on? We were really lucky because we were doing an internal um, hackathon that weekend. So we actually had a really good group of like developers, customer support, marketing, all in the office at the exact moment we went down. Handy. Yeah, it was, it was really lucky. Um, so we were like, oh, okay, we can solve this now. So we knew about it before our supplier did, I think. Um, and we were able to message every user in the app, put everything on social and just say, just carry another card. I think... Um, we're, we're at the stage where people are really forgiving about this sort of stuff. I, this is where I do feel bad for the banks because they just don't get away with it. I think it's okay to be open to people, but challenger banks are still given the benefit of the doubt because we're new, probably more so than, than we deserve. Um, so we like beat everyone up massively about it, but um, everyone was kind of nice on us. I, I'm not so sure it's it's people taking it easy on you because you knew. I, I kind of find like there's a, and this probably comes into a little bit about how you communicate with customers, if I'm honest with you. It's actually about earning that credibility and that trust with them. That actually, you know, if I trust you and I feel you're actually on my side, I'm, I'm willing to, to kind of, uh, you know, be a bit more flexible if things aren't actually working. Whereas if I'm, it's like if you're arguing with somebody and you always remember that last argument, then, you, you know, you're always on that point of snapping. Um, so I, I guess all you guys are actually communicating with your customers in a very different way. You know, I know Fedor is based around a community, really. So how has that sort of changed, do you think, the, the relationship that you've got with your customers? I, I think now customers kind of expect uh, that the banks or any kind of services is answering to them at the channels they want to reach out to them. So it's what we are trying to do, right? Like we are trying to give them the range of channels that they have in mind to be kind of at the forefront every time something is coming up, like for example, the chatbots that are uh, now new. and. F- like just listen to them where they want to to be listen uh, listened to. So um, it echoes back with like the branches stuff that we started uh, the discussion with. Like at this time, it was like clients had kind of the feeling that they could talk to. The only way to talk to their banks was to go to the branch. Actually, you can be a very good digital product. The only 
thing is that the client needs to be able to have the feeling he can reach you out anywhere and you will get a fast answer and a good customer service. It's really interesting how the community creates that because I get the sense that a lot of executives at banks actually spend quite a bit of time meeting their customers. You know, the, the, the C-suite will, will bump into customers quite a bit, but it's everybody. It's the other 100,000 people that don't. Um, so the, the execs get customer centricity and they feel like their organization gets it as much as them, but maybe they don't. I mean, that example of building a community around you where everybody in the organization is exposed to them is, is one way to do that. Megan, have you guys got something similar? How do you how do you make sure that everybody installing knows what the customer thinks, feels, and believes? I, I suppose it's probably fair to point out first that we have the luxury of only being 100 employees. So we're not quite the 100,000 or 140,000 that Barclays is. So having a culture um, that has a similar mindset, a similar vision is something that's very core to us. Um, and when we hire people, we're looking for people who are equally passionate about what we're doing. Um, but I would say that we each have our own imperative around how do we have this customer centricity? How do we communicate with customers? How do we engage not only just like in a day-to-day -day context, but from a work perspective as well, and make sure that communication is transparent, it's clear, all the way from product to marketing to day-to-day -day interactions when you meet someone on the tube. So it's um, throughout the whole the whole journey. Makes, makes a whole bunch of sense to me. So you guys must get asked this a lot, but if you had one piece of advice for a CEO of an incumbent organization, Ollie, what, what would that be? I would say work out what you're better at than anyone else. So if you went to like the CEO of a big bank and said, what are you better at than all your competition? They, they definitely won't say the same thing as the, the guy right below them. And I think as a company, you need to work out what one or two things are you going to be really good at and just focus on that. That's the most important thing, I think. There's something interesting, though, about everybody who owns different P&Ls will tell you their product is, is that, the right one because their bonus depends on their P&L doing a little bit better and their, their empire continuing to exist. So it's, uh, there's definitely something about incentives there. Um, Sophie, what about yourself? What, what advice would you give? Yeah, well, I would echo uh, like with what um, Oli said, but then trying to find another one, I would say like if you want to embrace digital, find a good reason to do it, not for the sake of digital, and then uh, focus on inputting that in the company culture. Um, I suppose first I should say that I, I wouldn't envy being a CEO of an incumbent bank right now. I think the challenges in front of them are pretty massive. But at the same time, yesterday I was at a conference and I saw someone from Barclays speaking and she was talking about their, how they have 140,000 employees and it's tough to make decisions quickly and it's tough to look at new business models and new revenue streams. Um, and they were afraid of becoming an infrastructure business where basically they bear all the cost, but all of the higher financial products are now being eaten up by all of these new players in the market. And I think that perspective is going to to cause them a lot of problems. I think they don't need to be so focused on looking at how can we maintain our current profits? How can we maintain our current footage? Looking into the future saying what's next and how do we embrace that and how do we let go of these current revenue streams if that means embracing a new model? What do we need to let go of and in order to maintain um, our footing. It's, it, that which you chase runs away from you. There's there's definitely something about, like if you're holding onto it really, really tightly, then maybe you'll hold onto it for a little bit longer, but you're not ready 
and when the change does come there's there's definitely an irony there so um definitely some good advice there but what about the other side of this what's been the biggest challenge that you guys see and and what are your biggest challenges coming up so for us it's no small feat getting a banking license the the entire process of just applying successfully submitting an application um getting your banking license with restrictions lifting restrictions that process is very arduous very challenging it takes a lot of time takes a lot of money and for good reason it should be difficult to become a properly licensed bank with FSCS protection, but it has been, been very challenging. How about yourself, Ali? Yeah, I think the biggest challenges are getting the long-term growth. I think fintech isn't mature in the UK market. You've got early adopters and then there's a big gap. I think bridging that gap is going to be the biggest challenge for all of us. I think peer-to-peer lenders went through it really harshly. Um, you saw Zopa get early success, then years and years of real hard troubles before they hit profitability. Banks are going to go through the exact same process, and I think that would be the biggest challenge. Yeah. Interesting. Sophie? Yes, it's about uh, being able to do everything we want to do. So like we are still a rather small company, plenty ideas, plenty of things we, we want to prioritize. Of course, we have like a, pr- a priority thing that we would like to, to things to go faster all the time. But what a nice place to be in. There's too much to do and not enough time to do it all. It's, uh... Oh dear, we have too many good ideas. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Woe upon us. Too little ideas, too little time. But, but to be fair to the um, incumbent organizations, there are plenty of smart people in those organizations with plenty of good ideas it's it's often the ability to go execute those and, and I guess that's that's the biggest challenge well I'm, I'm really quite buoyed by the Barclays example where they know that there's the problem you know my piece of advice would be to to organizations like that is actually use that fear as a catalyst for change you know actually the the hardest thing to do is usually sort of um, you know change an organization when actually there's no impetus for change and actually the organizations that can harness the you know near-death experiences to really sort of make wholesale change happen in the organizations they're the ones that really sort of continue to survive it's like natural evolution and stuff but uh, but no I think uh, yeah really really interesting points lastly um, to uh, kind of finish us off great ideas so far but what's next for Fedor in 2017 where do you guys go now we are launching in several uh, countries one thing that uh, has been in the press is that we are launching in France uh, so that's Quite a big piece. Um, new things around the world. Uh, new contracts with B two B clients launching digital uh, digital banks. So that's going to be quite exciting too. And for new products, uh, there is the marketplace in white label that is called uh, Finance Base. So we are empowering banks to launch their own marketplace, basically, and we are doing all the work for um, for them and other stuff that I cannot talk about yet. Ooh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> big tease, you you tease. <laughs> Ollie, what about you? What's coming up this year? Yeah, so we launched our accounts at the kind of mid-December. So we've been spending a lot of time refining them. This year is all focused on new products and new markets. So that'd be really good. Ooh, exciting. again, exciting. Can you tell us which? We can't. Oh, I see. <laughs> just so many secrets here. Sorry. Megan, is there anything you can tell us that's coming up that, that yes. you can actually tell us? Yeah, so I do have a secret and I'm going to share it because this show will air after the secret has been announced. So don't worry. Um, so yesterday, as you know, we announced our first marketplace partner of TransferWise. Today, we launched our beta. So that was really exciting. And then on Monday, we're going to announce that we're launching CAS, which is current account switching service, which will be really huge for us. After that, you'll see us opening up Android beta, 
um, shortly thereafter, launching our API. Um, then you can expect mobile wallets, and then you can also expect um, new payment schemes coming on board. So Those will be a little bit coy about because they can't say anything does specific. Does this mean then that somebody who is an account holder with one of the big banks that hates them could actually switch their whole uh, bank account to Starlink? Yes. So we are a proper bank. We are fully licensed. You can use it with direct debits, faster payments. You can use it just as you would um, your bank. And it's great because it also has real-time notifications. It has card control. It has all sorts of stuff, biometric, um, everything you could possibly want in a bank. So give it a try. The battle begins. Yeah. Uh, the battle begins. Alrighty. So I, I've got to say, Megan, Ollie, Sophie, thank you for another great show. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. Where can people find out more about uh, Starling? Starlingbank.com or just on Twitter at Starlingbank. And uh, what about Loot? Yeah, we're at Loot.io. Loot.io and, and Fidor? Fidor.com and Fidorbank.uk. Fantastic. Thank you once again. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe. Uh, tell some friends. Tell some friends about what you heard. Um, and leave us a review on iTunes. This helps people discover us. Check out 11fs.co.uk if you want to know more about the team who bring you FinTech Insider every week. Until next week. Bye.